Over the next few weeks, Chris and I are going to be preaching along with preachers and churches around the world from a selection of texts that are specifically chosen for this season, the season that leads up to Christmas. Christians have also often called this season Advent. That comes from a Latin word that means coming. Jesus is coming, right? That's what we anticipate at Christmas, that he came to this earth, born in a manger. But we also anticipate, even in the moment of, of thinking about that story, we anticipate his return, that he will come again riding in victorious. That's what this season is about, Advent. And so if you open your link today, if you got a link, we list all those texts that Christians around the world are gonna be thinking about over the next few weeks. There's a little chart there. And if you're doing some private devotional time or time with your family, devotional time with your family over the next few weeks, I'd recommend these texts because they are all about the anticipation of the coming Lord. And so I don't know that there's a better thing to be spending time thinking about than getting ready for Jesus to come back, right? So I, I'd encourage you to do some devotional time with these texts. And so I'm gonna grab one of those texts today that's actually assigned to next week, Isaiah 64. So if you have a Bible and you wanna turn there, you can. That's where we'll be today. But the, the, the scripture will also be on the screen behind me and you can follow along there. Let's start with a prayer this morning. <clears throat> Oh God, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains would tremble before you as when a fire sets twigs ablaze and causes water to boil, come down to make your name known to your enemies and cause the nations to quake before you. For when you did awesome things that we did not expect, you came down and the mountains trembled before you. Since ancient times, no one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God besides you who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. You come to the help of those who gladly do right, who remember your ways. Amen. So that prayer was not mine first. I stole it. And I stole it from these people who had seen God before and really wanted to see him again. And so in that regard, I think it's a fairly appropriate prayer for most of us. And of all the words in that prayer in Isaiah 64, as that chapter begins, all the words that you see behind me, the one that jumps out to me is when, there in verse three, for when. And I began to think about, as I looked at that word, how many stories start with the word when? And and it occurs to me that nearly every story starts with the word when. So uh, when I was little, when your mother and I met, when your grandpa went off to war, when you broke your leg, when you were a kid, right? When you went to school, when you were, when you were baptized, when you were baptized. That word when is doing something, right? It's, it's locating a story in a specific point in time, a story that you haven't forgotten. The very fact that you can tell the story and begin with the word when means you have not forgotten the story or when it happened, right? And stories define us, don't they? I mean, I can think growing up about my mom every year, about the same time of year, she'd tell us the story of when my grandmother as a child got polio and just altered the trajectory of her life. And I've told you all that story. And I think that we will tell our boys the story of when their grandfather fell, broke his back, 
and his life was changed. I think we'll tell that story. But on a much, a much lighter note, I think about when I met Lindsay for the first time in the campus center at Abilene Christian, freshman year welcome week. She doesn't remember the meeting as well as I do. And um, if you've seen Lindsay, you know why she left more of an impression on me than I left on her. But I'll never forget that. And I'll, I'll never forget when I drove out to Cottonwood Church of Christ to preach to 12 for the first time. And when I drove back thinking to myself, this is what I'm supposed to do, right? When stories define us, don't they? And you've got, you've got your stories. And Israel, to whom that prayer belongs in Isaiah 64, they had their stories. And they've got a host of stories they could have drawn on. They've got creation, Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, Abraham, Jacob, Isaac, just a host of stories that could define Israel. But everybody knows there's really one story that defines Israel. And that story is the Exodus. 400 years, they're slaves in Egypt, and then God hears them crying out. And so God came down. That's the story. God comes in the form of Moses. He comes in the form of 10 plagues. He comes in the form of waters parted and dry ground that they walked on between those walls of water. And he comes in the form of manna and quail as they wander in the desert. And he comes in the form of a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire at night leading them through the Exodus. God came and he saved them. And that story so defined them that like, like my mom, like your mom and grandmother and father, you'll just find yourself telling those stories over and over again that define you. And that's what Israel does with the Exodus story. They tell it over and over again in the Old Testament, far removed from the book of Exodus itself, like here in Isaiah 64. So that prayer we just read is the beginning of Isaiah 64, but just before that in Isaiah 63, the Exodus shows up. Then his people recalled the days of old, the days of Moses and his people. Where is he, God, who brought them through the sea, who divided the waters before them, who led them through the depths? And as they're remembering that story, they think to Sinai, Mount Sinai. And when God showed up on the mountain and the whole mountain began to shake and they asked for God to do it again, they say in Isaiah 64, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains would tremble before you. Stories define us. And for Christians, Christmas is this really good time to remember the story that most defines us. So just as Israel remembers when you did awesome things that we did not expect here in this passage, for Christians, we remember that at a point in time, God did an awesome thing, that the Son of God became flesh and dwelt among us. You know, that he lived and died and was resurrected on our behalf. That's our story. But, but there's a problem. And the problem is the, the but. And some of you have problematic buts, so you know what I'm talking about. That was good stuff. How did you not laugh at that? That was great. All right. We got an uphill road ahead of us. 
The problem for Israel and for many of us is that even as we try to reach back to that defining story, for them the Exodus, for us the story of Jesus, even as we try to reach back to that defining story, this host of buts creep in. That is things that happen in this life that we weren't anticipating. Okay, traumas, difficulty. And for Israel, their life has been a series of traumas. They've been, by this point in Isaiah 64, defeated by the Babylonians, sent into exile again. Their homes, their cities have been destroyed. The temple has been laid waste. They've spent generations now away from home, abused and neglected. In many ways, they are the survivors of trauma, right? Trauma. That occurred to me this week. I was working on, or a few weeks ago, I was working on this sermon and I was reading this passage and a Highland woman walked into my office. She was having a tough day. She began to share with me just a little bit and she told me about being abused as a child. And she had endured years of trauma. And she said with tears in her eyes, she said, Eric, trauma is like an invisible backpack, okay? That's weighted down so heavy, you can barely stand under it but nobody else can see it. She said, that's how I feel. And then she walked out of my office and I look again at this text and right there at the beginning of verse five, that word, but jumps out at me. You'll see it on the screen behind me. And I hadn't noticed it before. So at this point, as we just read in the first verses of Isaiah 64, they have been working, they've been pleading with God, working God to come back and do what he did before like that first time, like that original story, come back and shake the heavens. But then there's this, but, but when we continued to sin against them, your ways, God, you were angry. And how then can we be saved? All of us have become like one who's unclean and all of us are righteous acts, acts are like filthy rags and we all shrivel up like a leaf and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. No one calls on your name or strives to, lay, strives to lay hold of you for you've hidden your face from us and you've given us over to our sins. So what's really fascinating and troubling about this text is that Israel obviously knows that things have gone wrong. They just don't know what. They don't know what the problem is because notice this pendulum. First, it's their sin that's the problem, but then it's God's anger that's the problem. Okay, and then it's their filth, their uncleanliness, but then it's that God is hiding himself. This God who used to be so present, invisible, is now hiding, and that's the problem. Uh, Bessel van der Kock wrote the definitive book on trauma. It's called The Body Keeps the Score. The Body Keeps the Score. Some of you have read it. And he said that what, what we witness in that passage is actually the mark of trauma. So trauma survivors years later will experience anger and frustration and disappointment, but they will have a very difficult time identifying just what it is that's causing the problem, right? So like Israel here, you know, even in this moment when they're recalling that defining story, when God came and saved them, that word, but rears its head. There was a time when you did this God, but now there's but now there's a problem and we just, we don't know exactly what it is, but we know this is not how it's supposed to be. Recent news reports about sexual assault and trauma 
have been really eye-opening for me and saddening to me. I just had no concept of how widespread sexual assault and trauma was. From, from verbal to physical, you know, spanning the gamut. I just didn't know. I didn't know. And so one of, the, one of the really interesting things is that as mostly women, some men, but mostly women, particularly in the entertainment industry and politics have, have come out and told stories of being sexually assaulted, that thousands and thousands of other women, particularly on social media, have begun to share their own stories of being assaulted themselves, of being survivors of trauma. And what they often end that story with is a hashtag that says, me too. Yeah, me as well, me too telling their stories. Okay, the very fact that I would use that word to describe what they're doing betrays what I think happens in trauma. So I had lunch with a, a trauma therapist this week and he, he put it to me like this. He said, what happens in trauma or what trauma is, is when someone or something rewrites your defining story. When someone or something rewrites the story that defines you. So even in that moment, when you were trying to recall when God did awesome things, when you were in the youth group and it was awesome, when you were close with God, when life was treating you really well and God and you felt so tight, that even in that moment when you were trying to recall when God did awesome things, that this backpack just pulls heavily on you, leaning you into this other story that you didn't choose for yourself. And so like Israel, you're going to see, it's going to seem like God is hiding, like God's not available to you and you'll be frustrated and angry with him and then with yourself and you'll feel guilt, right? And you won't know exactly what's going on. I read, I read the story of a woman this week. She was um, assaulted in her own backyard, in her own backyard. So she goes to her minister who convinces her to go see a therapist. And eventually the therapist tells her, I want you to, to confide in someone else. I just want you to share this story with somebody else. So she comes to her minister to talk to who they, who they might share the, who she, she might share the story with. And she decides on Sam Smith, which is, is not his real name. She says, I'm going to tell Sam. And the minister says, Sam? And because Sam's a recovering alcoholic and he's usually not recovering. And uh, he says, you know, maybe, maybe you'd want to tell somebody who's, you know, kind of got their life together a little bit more than Sam. Or maybe tell a woman who would understand a little bit better. And she said, nope, I'm going to tell Sam because Sam has been to hell and back. And I think he'll know what it's been like for me to go there. And maybe he can tell me how to get back, how to get back. She wants to get back, not back to where, but back to when. When her life didn't feel like this hell she's living in, right? She wants to recover that first story before somebody came and rewrote it without her permission. And she sounds a lot like Israel in this passage, right? Pleading with God to wipe away this unwanted revision in their story, to come and deal dramatically with their enemies, to come and shake the heavens, to shake the ground like God did before, back when you did awesome things, God. And the truth is, that is the promise God gives us. Hebrews 12, we read that once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. Once more, 
I'm going to do it. And that's what we long for at Christmas time. Come back, Jesus, right? Deal with our enemies, right? Let justice reign in all the earth. You better watch out. You better not cry. Wait, that's Santa Claus. But Jesus is coming too, right? And that's, that's what we want. We want the earth to be watching out, right? Because he is, he is coming back. And not only is the earth going to shake, the heavens are going to shake when he comes back. But if you live long enough, you're going to endure sorrows and trauma and life is going to feel unfair and God is going to seem like he's hiding and you'll wrestle with your own guilt and confusion and you're just going to long for God to come back. But life is just not going to make a lot of sense. And yet, and yet, it's the last word you'll see there in verse 8 of Isaiah 64. Yet you, Lord our Father, are our Father. We are the clay and you are the potter and we're all the works of your hand. Don't be angry beyond measure, Lord. Don't remember our sins forever. Oh, look on us, we pray, for we are all your people. And yet, he says, and yet. Yet while we wait for that final story, we don't wait alone. Yet even, you know, as we're longing for that final story, but this backpack is pulling us in this opposite direction, that this person in that very moment comes to us, a father and a potter. And I, I think like, if, if this is the message I want you to leave with today, notice the difference between what Israel asks for and what they get, because the difference is stark. At the beginning of Isaiah 64, what Israel wants, it, like I heard in high school, they want shock and awe, right? They want God to come and do a dramatic thing. They want God to deal with everybody who took it upon themselves to rewrite their story. They want justice to be done. God, come down and shake the earth like you did before. That's what they want, right? And the promise of Christmas is that indeed Jesus is coming and will do that very thing. But what they get in the meantime, yet, what they get is a, a person, a father, not an abusive or neglectful father, but a father who's present and available. They get this potter, which, which means he is close enough to touch us, to take, his in, take us in his hands and shape us into what he wants us to be, right? What he longs for us to be. And I think that's, that's the message of Christmas, of Advent. There was this time there was this moment in history when God did an awesome thing, when the Lord, the Son of God, came and dwelt among us, took on flesh in that manger, lived among us, died, and was resurrected. But life's hard, right? Life is tough. And you're going to endure these series of traumas in your life, right? But like what the trauma therapist told me this week, what is most difficult for trauma survivors is intimacy, because they've lost trust. But what they need to recover is the ability to trust. And the only way to get that is intimacy. 
So while what they want is for God to come down in shock and awe, what they get is this father who comes close enough to touch them. This father who's there and who's present and with them. And so as we await the arrival of Jesus this Christmas, as we drive by the nativity sets, as we listen to the Christmas music, as we sing, come thou long expected Jesus, right? We know that we are not waiting alone. That the father, the potter, is as close to us as we'll allow him to be, desiring to heal us. And our prayer is that, Lord, you would make us the clay in your hands, in your hands. If you haven't given yourself to that Lord in baptism, I'd love to invite you to do that. He is a good God. We'd love to talk to you today about that. We could baptize you this morning. I'll be down front to receive you if you'd like to do that. We've also got shepherds who'll be in the back. So if you'd like prayer today, I'd invite you to go back and see them. Let's stand together as we conclude our time in worship. All who are thirsty and all who are weak come to the fountain.